0: Acts chapter 20. I'll be reading Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months... And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word to our souls, to our minds, and as instruction to our lives. To the glory of Jesus, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the spirit of worship that is amongst us this morning that we have been enjoying. And I plead with you that that spirit of worship continue as we encounter you as we encounter your son, the power of the spirit in this word working in in our lives. To the joy of our hearts, to the strength of our callings, to the glory of your name. Amen. And amen. Every single one of us who who have come to Jesus means we have called out of darkness into light in order to enjoy God right now in our lives as sinners and to enjoy him one day in the resurrection without sin forever and it also means that during this time down here we are to shine that light through our lives in a dark world, we're called to enjoy God as an end. And we're also called to impact our little worlds, depending on who we are, in differing degrees, with differing callings, and in differing ways. Ways every believer. Now, having said that, one absolutely sure way to get discouraged in what I just said is to compare yourself with others. We're going to be looking at the Apostle Paul again this morning as we make our way through Acts. By God's providence, Paul changed the world in a way that few human beings ever had. We're going to look at that. If you make Paul, the impact that he had, the results that he saw, you make that The standard of your faithfulness to Christ, then you're doomed to depression. If you measure yourself by the standard of Charles Wesley and all the hymns and some great hymns that he wrote, and you're a songwriter, you're doomed. If you measure yourself by Billy Graham and his evangelism or Jonathan Edwards and his depth or Hudson Taylor and his extraordinary missionary work in China or just by Mrs. Smith there in the local church whom God has given her such a wonderful, soft, uplifting disposition and one-on-one encouragement to hurting Christians, compare yourself with her you will be depressed. Unless you're her. Compare yourself with the power of oratory of preacher X, Y, or, or Z, or the consistent faithfulness of Brother Bill in his street evangelism, or the year after year after year constant ministry of helps of Deacon Jones, who's there at every church function in order to make sure everything behind the scenes is getting done. Or you compare yourself to those brothers and sisters in Christ who, who fill this call and have started ministries to help people get delivered out of this horrific sex trafficking and pornography in our day. Compare yourselves with them. And you're not doing that. You may get very depressed. Compare yourselves with those Christian families who felt a call and and a passion and are driven to foster care in order to deliver at least a few children out of a a, a horrific life and maybe give them a chance. If you measure yourself by others, other real people, you will be discouraged. Your call To be faithful. Faithful first and foremost to love God through Jesus Christ. Faithful to give of yourself to others in love. Faithful to use your little gifts. Or your big gifts. Or your little and your big giftings for the sake of others within the church and in the world. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And so, as we look this morning at our passage, and if, if we don't compare ourselves with, with the vastness, with the results of the Apostle Paul's ministry and his particular calling by God, well then we may, as we pay attention to what we see and look at his faithfulness in what God called him to do, we may be very encouraged in our own faithfulness where the Lord has placed us. At this juncture in our lives. And so. Having said that. It is true. The apostle Paul changed the world. By God's providence. And he did it. Through his drive. To establish. And to strengthen local churches. For all of us here, in whatever ways we are called to use our gifts, it should all be done with that same gospel centeredness. So, remember where we've been as we approach now chapter 20. And as we, and before we get to it, This is what Paul was about up to this point and will continue to be about. He stood upon the words of the Lord Jesus when Jesus spoke to Peter about Peter's confession that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. That's what drove Paul. His ministry was to travel over the Roman Empire preaching the gospel and then helping those new believers begin to congregate. To meet as local churches. Those churches then would be a light in their particular areas of the gospel. Now that they're planted, Paul's Heartbeat was not just telling people how you can be saved in Jesus and then move on to the next place. It's not what he was about. He was about telling them how you can be saved in Jesus. But his soul was utterly committed to Christ's church. His bride. He said to the Philippians when he wrote them, You! The church in Philippi. You're my joy. You're my crown. He wrote to the Colossians. He didn't even plant that church personally. Some of his team and workers went out and did that. And he writes to that church. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And not only that, another church in a nearby city, Laodicea. And for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not. Seeing me, Paul, face to face. Here's my struggle that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together as believers in love, in order to reach all the fullness of the assurance of understanding and of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He tells the church in Thessalonica. For what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus when He comes? What are we going to boast about? Is it not you? Yes, church in Thessalonica. You are our glory and our joy. And after that very long list of His sufferings for Christ, beatings and labors and hard work in planting churches. He ends it this way. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety. Okay, parents for children, feel it. Of my anxiety for all the churches. That's the man. That's what's going on, particularly in verses 1 to 6 of Acts 20. And so, what I am going to do this morning, though, this is a morning where we're going to really glean not just from Luke, but from Paul's writings themselves to fill in, because he helps us, what is going on in his ministry and life in these particularly six verses. So let's start with verses 1 and 2, Acts 20. Luke says, after the uproar ceased, remember last week, there was almost a riot, they're in the theater, Paul's life is saved and so were the others. After that, Paul sent for the disciples there in Ephesus And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece and to Corinth. Now, in what we read here in chapter 20, There are two main purposes for Paul's traveling to all of these churches. First, it was obvious to preach to them. He loved to preach to the choir, to encourage them, to strengthen the believers. And that's what he's doing. But the second reason is because he cared about. The unity of all the churches. Even though they were ethnically and culturally diverse. Particularly just Gentiles. Versus the mother church in Judea. The Jewish church. And this is why. For at this point... At least the previous two years through letters and sending off his workers to these churches, Paul has been orchestrating and encouraging all of these churches that he has planted to be raising a lot of money for the poor Christian brothers and sisters in Judea and in Jerusalem so that their offering would be ready by the time Paul arrives at their city. It's already done. That's what he's been doing. Now, Paul, at this point, when he leaves Ephesus, he's essentially been there for three years serving in ministry now. While he was in Ephesus during those three years is when he wrote... 1 Corinthians. And he wrote this to them. Chapter 16, 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, Iconium, Pisidian Antioch, Lystra, Derbe, that whole region. he's, He's been telling them the same thing as I directed the churches of Galatia. So you also are to do On the first day of the week, as you meet every Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and to store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting of the money when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you appoint or accredit, I'll send them by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Okay, now get the picture. Remember, Luke just told us back in chapter 19, verse 21. Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and then Achaia, that's Greece, Corinth, and go then to Jerusalem. And in verse 16 of chapter 20, he says, for Paul, he didn't want to stop in in Ephesus. He didn't want to be, because he was in a hurry, to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. The driving force behind Paul's trip to Jerusalem is to deliver the money collected from all of these Gentile churches. And behind that drive of that offering is Paul's desire to see the natural wall of separation and hostility between Jews and Gentiles coming to Christ to be broken down. He wanted to show the Jewish Christians in Judea and in Jerusalem, look how our God is forming in the hearts of these Gentile believers in Jesus. Oh, money is connected to the heart. How He's forming in their hearts a love for you. Because they are in the same body of Christ as you. This is what drives Him. You remember how Paul put it in Ephesians? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, meaning non-Jews, Gentiles, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He, Jesus Himself, is our peace. Paul's a Jew. He's our peace. He has made us both Jew and non-Jew. He's made us one. And He has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, meaning with the Jews, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel. So Paul, he saw this offering as a witness to the Jewish church in the Jewish homeland and Probably even because it would be found out from the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem, he saw it as a witness to the power of the gospel to transform Gentile hearts. Okay. Now, in previous weeks I've mentioned, so remember, as Paul's in Ephesus during that period of three years, Yeah, he wrote 1 Corinthians. After he wrote that, a month, two, three weeks, I don't know how long after, he made a visit to the church in Corinth. And it didn't go well at all. It was a miserable, contentious experience between Paul and the church. He goes back to Ephesus. And then he wrote another letter. A strong, straightforward, direct letter filled with tears as he put pen to paper. And he sent that letter off most likely by the hands of Titus. And Titus takes it to Corinth. Okay, just feel Paul. He is very... Anxious about how the Corinthians are going to respond. And this is about the time now he's going to leave Ephesus. He's anxious. Will they repent? Will they continue to listen to these false, self serving preachers who have infiltrated the church there? Will the Corinthians be reconciled to Paul? He doesn't know the answer. Okay, another pause. We do see, Luke lets us know, he leaves Ephesus and he goes to Macedonia. Originally Paul had different plans and he even let others know of his plans. He originally who knows, a month earlier or a year earlier, his original plans were to leave Ephesus and to go straight to the church in Corinth and spend time with them, And then from there to go to Macedonia. And then leave Macedonia and go back to Corinth again and then from there go to Jerusalem. Those were his plans. They changed. They changed because he doesn't know the response of the church in Corinth. After that relationship blew up, he essentially made a pact with himself, I'm not going to go there and have another miserable experience, another painful experience. So he's waiting to find out. And you can't do it by telephone and internet and emails. He's waiting to have Titus come back from his months-long stay with them and report their response to the letter. And so he doesn't go straight to Corinth. He goes actually up north first, not even to Macedonia. He goes up north this way, and he ends up at Troas. Not the tr- not, he'll end up at Troas again, but not this, this is, this is a, first another visit. Then he'll go to Macedonia. And we know that because this is how Paul writes, just a a month or two later, when he gets to Macedonia, he writes this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. When I came to Troas, in order to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, it was like going great, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother, Titus. He wants to know the response of the Corinthians. And Titus is his way to get it. And it was obvious he's not going to show up here in Troas. So I couldn't wait any longer. I just had to leave. He says... Because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them and went to Macedonia over the Aegean Sea. And now he's in Macedonia, which means the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And he says to the Corinthians, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within. Listen to this now. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus brought good news. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he, Titus, was comforted by you, the Corinthian church. As he, Titus, told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, Paul, so that I rejoiced still more. He goes on, Corinthians, For even if I made you grieve by my letter, that letter we do not have in the New Testament, if I made you grieve by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So we see Paul finally gets to meet up with Titus there in Philippi. Or Thessalonica or Berea. Whichever city he is in at that time. There in Macedonia. And he sets when he sits down. Dictates. Writes. Second Corinthians. In Macedonia. And in that. Towards the end of the letter. Paul then. Gives the Corinthians. A final encouragement. To be very. Generous. In their giving to this special offering for the Jerusalem church. And thus to make sure that by the time I get there, it's done. No collections needed. This is a portion of how he writes to them. Chapter 8, verse 1 of 2nd Corinthians. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. That's how Paul looks at this, God's power of grace working in Christians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, where he is at while he's writing this. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme financial poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They were begging us earnestly for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Corinthians See that you excel in this act of grace also. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each person must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's what's happening in Paul's life. So picking up in verse 2 of Acts 20, Luke tells us, When he had gone through those regions, that is, the Macedonian churches, and he had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, Corinth. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter... The Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. And Gaius of Derby, and Timothy. And the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Now, first, Paul leaves Macedonia. He goes down to Greece, Athens, Centuria. Clearly, most of his time is there in the city of Corinth. And it is there in Corinth that Paul writes a letter to the church in the Roman capital, city of Rome. He has not been there. He didn't plant that church. He wants to preach to them. He wants to encourage them. And he wants to be helped by them on his way in his missionary work to Spain. But he says this to them in chapter 15. Here he is in Corinth at this time. I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. The offering. For Macedonia and Achaia, that's Corinth and Centria, Greece essentially. Macedonia and Greece have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, their spiritual blessings, the Jews' spiritual blessings, and don't ever not know it, we who are Gentiles... Our salvation through Jesus Christ comes through the Jews. If they share in their spiritual blessings of the Messiah, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them the Jewish church in Jerusalem, delivered to them what has been collected... I will leave for Spain by way of you. So he writes Romans. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. And now he's about ready to leave. And there's a plot against Paul by the unbelieving Jews in Corinth. And it gets uncovered. And so he changes plans. Because it would have been a death trap for Paul to get on a boat there at the port of Corinth. And to cross the Aegean. It's so easy. Where is he? They find him, hit him in the back of the head with a lead pipe and throw him overboard. He's easily dead. And so Paul changes plans. And he travels again up north through the region of Macedonia. Now notice all the names Luke gives us here. And not only that, Luke himself re-enters the picture Verse 6, you see that? But we sailed away. We haven't heard a we, Luke including himself, since the first visit to Philippi when they planted the church there. Because Paul left Luke there to pastor that church six years earlier. And now, in Philippi, it picks up now for the rest of the book of Acts, the We. Sections. Luke is with him. There were many different city churches who are all collaborating in this massive financial offering to go to Jerusalem. And these names are representing all of those provinces and regions from the churches, the Gentile churches of Asia in Galatia, in Macedonia, in Greece, probably with Titus. And they will all travel with Paul, with all that money, to Jerusalem. It's a safeguard one, but it's also that these Gentiles, other than Timothy, are all representing these churches as they go to James and the elders and to the rest of the church, knowing we are here to help relieve extreme poverty that many of you are doing. Who? These non-Jews who love Jesus. Paul's desire for goodwill and mutual love in unity between the churches of his Gentile mission and the Mother Church, the Jewish church in Jerusalem. That desire was huge for Paul. And Paul, he does not see the preaching of the gospel. Separately from the church. He sees the gospel is creating the church. He loves the church. And Luke, in our passage, gives us a taste of what these churches did on church day somewhat by focusing on one particular Sunday in Troas. Verse 5. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, probably because of stormy seas or something, we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. (coughs) There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little Comforted, but massively comforted. So, first, notice that Sunday became the main day for worship in the early church. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. Now, the Jewish Sabbath has always been the seventh day. It's Saturday. It seems to be clear that the switch from Saturday to Sunday worship gatherings took place because of the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday morning. All four Gospels testify to it, like Matthew 28.1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn... Of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. Now you got to think about this. In all of these cities, there there was a percentage of those Christians who were Jews. Who all of their life, up until their conversion, did worship services on Saturday in the synagogue. And now as believers in Jesus, that worship gathering around the Messiah is Sunday. And the only thing that explains that is the focus on the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday morning. And this tradition in Christianity has carried on for 2,000 years now. And this is why, that this one main worship gathering day was referred to early on as the Lord's day. Now we just read in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, when you're going to meet together, Paul says, so, here's my instruction. On the first day of the week, meaning on Sunday, as you're gathered together, set something aside week by week by week. And then the Apostle John, he writes towards the end of the first century, these words, In Revelation 1, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice. When he wrote that to these churches in Asia, they weren't wondering, what's the Lord's day? They knew it was Sunday. They knew it was that main gathering worship day of the early Church. This is why we don't play baseball or go to the beach or do our yard work during the Lord's Day, corporate worship times. We gather to pray and to sing and to read Scripture and to preach the Word because our Lord rose from the dead on Sunday morning. Now, we live in the West, and Christianity has formed it, and we have a weekend. And Sunday, for instance, throughout Europe and America, well, not so much anymore, but had always been this, the Lord's Day. It's okay. We're in the dark world as things are turning to be post-Christian. But will Christians turn to be un-Christian is a big question. These Christians, there was no weekend. Sunday wasn't the day off. It was a normal day of work. And they're tired. And so as we see, most of the time these meetings seem to have happened in the evening. Look at verse 7 again. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now I don't think he spoke straight for 14 hours but probably four or five or six that got him to midnight. And then notice, other than Sunday, secondly, the breaking of bread. Now, that's all he gives us. It probably means an every Sunday fellowship meal where they're eating together. And probably, in the middle of that meal, they stop and they take the bread and they take the cup. And in whichever ways they wanted to do it, they recited the words of the Lord Jesus. This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And according to the Apostle Paul's instructions to his churches, it is at that time where they're taking some time and not in a hurry in examining their own hearts for unconfessed sin, hardness towards God or sinning towards each other or another. And then they would joyfully take The body drink his blood. And then, notice, they gathered on the Lord's day for instruction. From God's word. That's what Paul's doing. He's not talking about the baseball game. He's encouraging. He's preaching. He's unfolding. He's teaching. For hours. Now, here's the good news. That is mainly descriptive of what happened. Not necessarily prescriptive. Now, what is prescriptive is what he's doing. Preach the word. That's prescriptive. That Paul did it for four, five, or six straight hours before they got interrupted. That's not a prescription. I was in a church once, at least pushed that. And oh, okay, sorry. It wasn't good. But Paul is Paul. He's there for a week. And this is, and they know it, this is the last time they're going to see him. This is an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus himself. They would have borne 24 straight hours if they could held their eyes open to hear from that man. But as Paul said to Timothy later, though, this is part of the Lord's day. Preach the Word. Don't preach other stuff. Preach the Word. And so the point is Paul preached. He exhorted. He taught. Just as Luke showed us in the early church in Jerusalem, they gathered constantly and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to eating together and to praying together. But what we see here is what happens sometimes when sermons go too long. Some people Fall asleep. As we see with this kid, Eutychus, who's anywhere from eight years old to 14 years old, as far as we could tell. So think about it. Here's the great Apostle Paul in a very large house, in a very large room on the third story. Who knows if they got 150 or 200, how many people are packed in there, and he's preaching. For hours, and in the middle of it, a horrific tragedy happened. A kid falls out of the window, three stories up, and he's killed. Luke's there. He witnessed it. And he lets us know that the apostle, with signs and wonders, the apostle, Paul, mirrors the Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha, who when they encountered dead boys and their mothers grieving, lay over them, and the Lord raised them back to mortal life and gave them more years to live. And so Luke tells us, but Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And they took the youth away alive, verse 12, and they were not a little comforted. But it's funny, after he, that happens, they go back upstairs get some more food in their belly and Paul keeps talking and having discussions and Q&A until the sun comes up 4 or 5 hours later. And so what we see here then this morning is what is distinctive of the community called the church. They share a lot of stuff in common. They give of the resources They meet regularly on the Lord's Day to fellowship. And often over food and eating and celebrating the Lord's Supper. And breaking open the Word of God through praying the Word, reading the Word. And not here, but elsewhere in Paul's epistles, singing the Word and preaching the Word. So I'm going to go back to where I started as I close. Paul changed the world. And he modeled a love for God, a love for the gospel, a love for Jesus, and a love for Jesus' church. We're called to model Him and be faithful as Christians, not in His gifts, but in our gifts, our callings. I promise you, you will not change the world to the extent and like the Apostle Paul did. Don't compare yourself with him. Don't compare yourself with anybody in history or alive today. God calls you to be a toe or to be a finger or to be a liver or to be a heart or to be a head or to be a foot. That's precious. There is, in human history and in all existence, there is no other you. It's not an accident. You're called to Christ, you who believe. You're called to be a light with your personality. With your gifts, with the situation you're in now, or you'll find yourself in the future. Whatever the Lord's given you, be faithful with. Love God, walk with Christ, be faithful in the church community. Oh, you got children you're still raising? (sighs) There's a ministry. Raise that kid. Raise those children up in the Lord as the Scriptures command you to do. Be a light in that office, in that job, at that school, in that community. The community of Christ needs people to prepare food, meals, Show hospitality. Set up chairs. To teach children the Word of God. To teach adults the Word of God. To lead groups. To visit the sick. To counsel the weary and the hurting and the confused. To lessen the load of paying the community bills in the local church. We, we, all of us may not be called to change the whole world. Like the Apostle Paul was used to do. But every one of us who has come to Christ is called to change the world of our own influence. So if the Lord leads you to found a large ministry of outreach to abused children or to drug addicts. And you're gifted and you end up with hundreds of volunteers and employees to do that. That is awesome. Do it. If you feel led to have a Bible study in your home geared to the unchurched, pray and go for it. Lord, bless it. Is He calling you to be a missionary? Or a local church pastor? Follow His lead in the steps He'll lead you through. But here's the point. Every Seemingly, this is how Paul talks in First Corinthians 12, every seemingly insignificant or, or ostensibly, that's really important because it's public. Every tiny or public service for the Lord is vital. Don't compare yourself with others. Pursue the Lord Jesus in your daily life. He called you as an end to worship Him, to love Him, to depend on Him, and then to overflow in what He's calling you to do. Love Him with all your heart and seek to love and to serve others. He placed you You, where you are, for his purposes at this time in your life, and next month and next year. We don't know twists and turns in our lives but I promise every one of you as we sing this morning because Jesus knows you no less than He knows His Apostle Paul and He loves you in Christ no less than He loves Him and you be faithful to Him. You will hear just like Paul will hear on that day. Well done. and faithful servant. Let's pray. Jesus, you've given me such a great confidence to say to them what I just said about you. And it's because as we heard this morning that one of the great five solas stand on your holy, precious, written word, Old Testament, New Testament. I pray that every single one of us if any are outside Christ they end up in you today and those of us in you that we would sense this in our lives this week in our prayer times our bible times our service times our, 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 our pouring out in love and serving others whether we're exhausted tired or fresh that we will know in the experience of your spirit the truth of your depth of love and care for us and that it is your joy to hold us firm and fast to the end in faithfulness. We thank you.